Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. I'm thankful you have you've joined us this morning. I'm always amazed at God's goodness to us as a, as a church body. As uh, I preached last week and you heard last week, this year, uh, this January, to, uh, right about this time, seven years ago. Now, this is our seventh anniversary as a church here in Gainesville. And as we mark this anniversary, I, I, we're taking the time, I'm taking the time to evaluate our ministry through the lens of Scripture. Uh, after last week's sermon, I received some great feedback from many of you. I think the value of realistically looking at our ministry, uh, there's, I see the value that is in looking at our ministry with the aim of pressing on, with the aim of looking forward to the next seven years. I, I don't want to one of you, David Armstrong in particular, told me that told me how much he sees the need for this church to remain a solid church, a solid presence here in Gainesville. Uh, during, during our uh, hermeneutics equipping class last Sunday, we discussed the strategic importance of the church at Ephesus, and I, I showed the class how Ephesus was a hub church in Asia Minor, and connecting Jerusalem to, to, in the east to Rome in the west, and also the the, they're in Asia Minor and, and the connection to the other churches. I, I also mentioned during that class that today we have churches in strategic locations. Well, personally, I believe that this church, I believe that Gainesville is a critical location for the kingdom of God. Uh, you probably were aware the University of Florida draws thousands of people, thousands of students every year. We're a medical hub for this region. And as we have seen, we literally have the nations at our front doorstep every, every day. Of course, Gainesville has its difficulties, as you well know. If you're from around here, you know that Gainesville is very transient. It is one of the most transient cities in the United States. People come and people go. That is very difficult. As, I, as you know, that's very difficult for the body of Christ because you constantly have to watch people go out from us, uh, especially uh, this church has been especially hit hard in this regard. You know a lot of folks that have been here before and now are gone, and sometimes we wonder, well, why? Why does that happen? I know I do. I have even been, had the, the I've even questioned the Lord, why are you, why do you take so many people from us? Uh, but get, be, being in Gainesville gives us the providential opportunity to preach the gospel to the nations without ever leaving this city. As a church body, I hope you recognize the incredible responsibility we have to bring the light of Christ into this city, to preach to those who come, to have them come to this church body and hear the truth. And when they go out, when they go out, they go and they go to other solid churches or they plant churches or do all the things that they would do as, after they leave. As a, as a church body, I hope you recognize that. The enemy of our souls does not want a solid gospel preaching, Christ-exalting, Bible-centered, disciple-equipping, disciple-making church in this town. I hope you recognize that. The enemy of our souls does not want a church that preaches the gospel, that exalts Christ, that preaches the Bible, that equips disciples, that makes disciples. He doesn't want that in this town. And there are other places, there are other churches that do the same thing, but he does not want this church to be here. As a matter of fact, he hates it. He doesn't want you to be a part of a church of like-minded believers if you are committed to those things. He doesn't want you to be here. He wants us to be flat fractured. He wants us to go and do our own thing. He wants us to go and be online church is what he wants. He wants us to focus on other stuff. He wants us to focus and look inward. He wants you and I to be fighting with one another and not fighting against the kingdom of darkness. He certainly doesn't want us to be unified, and he certainly doesn't want us to be strong in the Lord in the might of his strength. That's what Ephesians 6.10 says. I ask it as we embark on our next seven years, as we embark on what the Lord has for us in the future as the body of Christ, you will forget what lies behind, forgetting what lies behind, and that you would reach forward to what lies ahead and press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what I pray for you. That's what I pray for this church. 
Now, last week we began a mini-series, if you will, called the, the Church Growing in Faith and Love. We started this series by studying 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, in our last sermon, last Sunday, we looked at the life of the author Peter. We found that he is the absolute perfect person to help us as we look to grow in faith and love and as we look to flourish as a church body in, the, in these next seven years. So with that, let me read the passage that we'll be in this morning, 1 Peter chapter 1, and then we're going to dive in. Now, I'll start with 1 Peter chapter 1, verse or I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. I've done that the whole time we've been in this series. I keep mixing them up. Okay, 2 Peter, not 1 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. Simeon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received the same kind of faith as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the full knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord seeing that his divine power has granted us to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. <clears throat> For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the Lord by lust. Now for this very reason also, Applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Heavenly Father, I just pray you would be with us this morning. As we hear the truths, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would apply them and that they would penetrate deep into our heart and that the application of your truth would be rich, Lord, rich in each individual life, but even more so in the life of this body of Christ here at Gainesville uh, at Grace Bible Church. Father, I pray that you would be glorified by your word this morning, and we trust that you will in Christ's name. Amen. As we approach 2024 and beyond, as we study this text, I want us to keep the following resolution in focus. We are resolved as a church body to have a faith that is true and growing. You might use the word flourishing. So as we approach 2024 and beyond with all its possibilities, the Apostle Peter gives us three litmus tests. We started looking at this last week. Three litmus tests for whether your faith is true and growing. You must have a first, a faith that advances in knowledge. We're going to look at this today. Second, a faith that abounds in love. And third, a faith that affirms God's grace. All right, so, again, during last sermon, we took a deep dive into the author's life, Peter's life, and ministry. We began with Jesus calling Peter early in the, our Lord's Galilean ministry. Then we considered the time when Peter, this is Matthew 16, accurately identified Jesus as the Son of Man and the Son of God. We found that despite having great promise, Peter also had many, many, many failures, especially early in his time with the Lord. For example, just after one of his greatest triumphs of, uh, as a disciple of Jesus, Peter rebuked the Lord for saying he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day, according to Matthew sixteen twenty one. Peter's greatest failure to that point in his life came on the heels of his greatest triumph. And that really, really is Peter's life in a nutshell. Just after Jesus commended him for correctly identifying him as the Son of God, our Lord sharply rebuked him for setting his mind on man's interest and not God's interest. So Peter was thinking worldly, he was thinking fleshly. Yet an even greater failure his, probably his greatest failure would be in the near future during Jesus' trials when he denied Jesus uh, three different times. And after that, when Peter was at his lowest point, the Lord restored him by charging him to tend his sheep. Now, as we saw last week, Peter went on to take his stand at Pentecost. He became uh, what I would describe as the bridge from the church in Jerusalem to the Gentile world. Now, now that we understand Peter's history, 
we need to look briefly at the historical context of 2 Peter. Now, Peter's audience in 2 Peter 1.1, he addresses those who have received the same kind of faith as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we could easily do an entire sermon or more preaching the truth of Peter's address, but let us boil it, boil it down to this. Peter addresses true believers who have trusted in Jesus' righteousness, not their own. Now, in 2 Peter 3, chapter 1, Peter clarifies that he's actually writing to the same people he wrote to before. In 3.1, he says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Now, in 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, we find that Peter wrote to those who, are, who reside as exiles, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, uh, Asia, and, and Bithynia, Bithynia. Again, Peter clarifies that he is writing to the chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. Now, the point is, is he's writing to people who were scattered, who were chosen of God according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, these, Christians who, these are Christians who had been chased out of their own land. They were now residents in foreign lands, if you will. They've been scattered. They were spiritual sojourners awaiting a day when they could inhabit the eternal city. And they were looking for, according to verse 4, they were looking for an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, having been kept in heaven for them, and for you and I, by that, for, that, for that matter. When Peter wrote before, they were being tested. They were being tested by the trial of fires. That's according to 1 Peter 6 and 7. Uh, they've been, they were being grieved by these trials. They were being tested by fire. Now, back in Peter's second letter, he's writing to them again. This time, this time he writes to expose false teachers for, who were infiltrating and threatening the church and the purity of her doctrine. These false teachers were purveyors of error, followers of our adversary, the devil. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, that our, the, that our adversary, the devil, prowls around, prowls around uh, like a roaring lion looking or seeking someone to devour. Now, he prowls around, but he's using people in the church, in and around the church, to do this. And so, uh, Peter knew that Satan's followers had already done much damage in the church, and he threatened, and they threatened to do even more damage in greater ways. And so, Peter writes this uh, letter of 2 Peter. Today, borrowing the words of the hymn, the church is one foundation, the church continues to be sorely oppressed by schisms, rent asunder, and by heresies, distressed. There are men and women who want to tear the church apart. They don't want to see the church do well. They don't want to see the church flourish. And as Peter entered the near, near the end of his life, he wrote this epistle as his dying words to the church to which he gave his life. He wrote to warn his brothers and sisters in Christ about the doctrinal challenges and grave danger that they faced. He wrote this letter. As he wrote this letter, he was, he was in, most likely in Rome facing a martyr's death under Nero, the, the emperor of Rome. And according to tradition, right after this, right after he wrote the letter, he was crucified like the Lord. Yet, Peter requested to be hung upside down because he refused to be crucified in exactly the same fashion as his beloved Lord. Now, as we've seen, given all that we, he had been through, Peter is then the perfect person to write this epistle, especially given this dire situation. He was the perfect person to show us, or he is the perfect person to show us as Grace Bible Church the way forward as we begin our second seven years at Grace Bible Church. With that, let's dive into the first of these three litmus tests for whether your faith is, is true and growing. You must have a faith that advances in knowledge. You must, again, have a faith that advances in knowledge, not just any kind of knowledge, but knowledge, true knowledge. Look down at 2 Peter 1, 2. Peter writes, grace and peace be multiplied to you. We know that God saves us by his grace through, his, through faith in him. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we quote it often, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works so that no one may boast. 
You see, grace is the free and unmerited favor that originates from God. He also gives us peace. Ultimately, not just tranquility that the world is that the world is chasing. Ultimately, he gives us peace with him, which is the most important peace. When we become believers, we're no longer at war with him. And after salvation, we begin to live according to his grace, and by his grace, we can have peace with him. You could say that peace is the effect or the result of God's grace. Peace, this peace is the blessing that flows from the forgiveness that we receive through Christ. Peter had a confidence. Peter had a confidence. He, he had a confidence that, that we'd multiplied grace and peace, according to 2 Peter 1-2. And in that verse, Peter wants them to recognize that grace and peace, uh, recognize grace and peace in an ever-increasing and, and abundant way. He wants them to, to have an even greater realization of God's goodness to them. Look back at your text in 2 Peter 1-2. Now let me just say before, I, before we go forward, Peter wanted them to have an even greater realization of God's goodness to them, and any pastor has that heart, right? Any good pastor has that heart, I'll say it that way. I have a heart for you. I want you to realize God's grace and peace. I want you to have a, a, a peace that surpasses all understanding. And the only way you can have that is if you recognize God's grace in your life. That's the only way. Look back at your text in 2 Peter 1-2. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the full knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ or Jesus our Lord. Here Peter qualifies his desire for these, for these saints. He, he wants them to advance in their knowledge of God and of Christ our Lord or Jesus our Lord. In other words, Peter wants uh, recognizes that we can only grow in grace and peace by growing or advancing in our knowledge of God and His only Son, Jesus our Lord. So the question is, what is this knowledge? What is this knowledge that he's talking about? Well, we need to notice that the, the multiplication of grace and peace comes in the full knowledge of God and, and Jesus our Lord. Uh, this could be translated as through. It, has the, 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 it is the full knowledge that multiplies grace and peace. Now, Peter uses a Greek word for knowledge that has the understanding of full or exact or rich or even intimate knowledge. Most, but not all, have the idea, most, most of the time, but not all the times when this word is used, it has the idea of saving knowledge. It conveys a knowledge that is real and thorough, having an intimate understanding. Uh, the Apostle Paul actually used this phrase on at least four occasions. He used it in First uh, Timothy two four uh, he de- that that God who desires all men to be saved and come to a full or to the full knowledge of the truth. In Second Timothy two twenty five he uses it again uh, that that they would be these people would be given uh, repentance leading to the full knowledge of the truth. Uh, in 2 Timothy 3.7, he uses it again, that there are people who are always learning and never able to come to the full knowledge of the truth. And in Titus 1.1, he says, Paul, a slave of God and, a, a, and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the full knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. The writer of Hebrews uses the same phrase, and some people believe that's Paul again, but he uses the same phrase. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You could say then that our salvation is founded on this, this knowledge of the truth. According to Ephesians 1.13, we hear the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. As a result, we, we believe. We believe in the gospel. We believe in this truth and are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. So from there, we advance or we grow in the knowledge of the truth. We grow through the word, the word of God. We grow in our deep depth of knowledge of who God is. In other words, we advance in our faith. He continues to reveal the truth to us through His Word, through the, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. The truth, then, is not in the natural man. It's not in the unbeliever. So when salvation comes, God reveals the truth in our hearts. Therefore, salvation is based on the revealed truth in His Word. And so after the initial revelation of the truth of the gospel, Peter is confident that when our knowledge and 
uh, grows through the Word of God, this growth multiplies the, the blessings of grace and peace in our life. Instead of being tossed to and fro, we're given this peace that surpasses all understanding, according to Paul. So what is false knowledge then? Well, in Peter's day and in our day, false knowledge masquerades as the truth. In the world, we see, we see this false knowledge parading around as truth. You know that, that man can be anything he wants to be. Uh, the, this this the false knowledge that, that there is no God. And, and this false knowledge that tries to explain the world uh, outside of who God is. You see, we have to be able to recognize those lies. And the, the best way for us to recognize those lies is to know the truth. Like the, the person studying and trying to understand counterfeit money doesn't, under, doesn't study the counterfeit. They study the real thing. They study the truth so that they can see the counterfeit. You need to study the truth. You need to be, uh, in, you need to be deep into the truth. You need to go de- deep into the Word of God so that when somebody preaches lies to you, you know it. In the church, false teachers introduce and they propagate false knowledge. We have to be able to recognize them. We have to be able to recognize their lies. And the best way for us to recognize their lies is to know the truth. Ultimately, then, the knowledge of God and Jesus is the true source of salvation and is the way to multiply grace and peace in, in our lives. And if we're going to stand firm as Satan's fiery arrows fly all around us in the words of the song, O Church Arise by Kristen, or Keith and Kristen Getty, it is with the shield of faith and the belt of truth that we'll stand against the devil's lies. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God rightly understood that will allow us to stand against his lies. Churches, we enter the next seven years at Grace Bible Church. We have to stand against the current of this culture. And as most of you realize, this culture is sliding further and further away from the truth. This culture is against the, uh, this church is against the current of the culture. We must know how to, know the truth to be able to identify error. John MacArthur says, the source of your knowledge is God, and the substance of your knowledge or salvation is... I'm sorry, let me say that again. The source of your salvation is God, and the substance of your salvation is knowledge. True and full knowledge. Knowledge that's advancing in Him. This knowledge will, will help you put on the helmet the hope of our salvation. That's, what Paul, that's Paul's words from 1 Thessalonians 5.8. So Peter confirms that as Christians, we have been granted everything that we need. Look down at your text in 2 Peter 1.3. He writes, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. I should remind you that Peter is talking to true believers in Christ. He is speaking to those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That's first. Peter 1, 2. That, that word foreknowledge doesn't mean that God looked down the corridor of time to see what you would do, to see what decision you would make about Him. Before the foundation of the world, He predetermined your path. He predetermined that you would believe. Later in Acts 2.23, Peter described Jesus' death uh, as being the predetermined plan and by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. I mean, he, he planned it all. That's what the Bible teaches without, without apology. And according to Peter, if you're counted among God's elect, His chosen, you have been given everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. You are not deficient. Brothers and sisters, you are not deficient in any way. You have even more than you need. You have been granted the very grace of God. The creator of this universe has shown grace to you. Paul says, the Apostle Paul says that God is able to make every grace abound to you. So that in everything, at every time, having every sufficiency, you may have an abundancy, abundance for every, every good deed. That's 2 Corinthians 9.8. Think about that. I mean, he's made it abound to you. 
In 1 Timothy 1, 12-14, Paul, Paul gives Timothy his personal testimony. Just listen. This isn't his personal testimony. This is in uh, 1 Timothy 12-14. I'm grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because He regarded me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent a- aggressor, let me just stop right there. If there's any proof of God choosing people, it has to be the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, who in the world would choose this man to lead the church, right? I mean, no one would other than our Lord because he's the one who makes those choices, right? He's the one that showed up to Paul on the road to Damascus. He's the one who, who appeared to him. Paul says, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And he says this in verse 14. This is 1 Timothy 1, 14. And the grace of God, of our Lord that is, was more than abundant with the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. It was more than abundant. Paul goes on to say that he was the foremost of all sinners. And God's grace not only overcame Paul's sin, but God's grace gave him the, the ability to be used in service to himself. Just think about that. God's grace super abounded abounded to in his life to Paul. Now look back to look back at your text in 2 Peter 1:3. Peter writes, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. The Greek word translated seeing could be translated because. It's because of his divine power. Uh, Peter wants his readers to understand why grace and peace multiply in the full full knowledge of him. First, we know this because his divine power confirms it. You you see, his divine power confirms his ability to grant everything that we require. Church, what you have to recognize is that we serve the creator of the universe. We we serve serve the, the most powerful... We serve, a, we serve a God who is the most powerful. Uh, we can't even describe how powerful He is. Just, think, just stop and think about this. In Psalm 24, verse 1, David, King David says, The earth is Yahweh's, as well as its fullness, as well as its abundance, the world and all those who dwell in it. I mean, that's the God we serve. That's who we serve. We see this truth from the first chapter and verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Psalm 19.1, David declares that the heavens are telling of the glory of God and the expanse is declaring the work of His hands. You look at the world, you look at the sky and the mountains and the moon and the stars and the sun. You look at, don't look directly in the sun, but you look at all those things and it's God who created them. It's God who created them. And the sun is so bright you can't even look at it without going blind, right? Just imagine the God who created those things. I was talking to one of you this past week in a text conversation. In that conversation, uh, this person said that if God didn't create the world just like we see in Genesis, then the Bible isn't true. And I agree, I agree with him. If, if God didn't create this world the way it says in Genesis, I, I, can't, I can't trust the Bible. But I know that the Bible does, the Bible teaches that, and I know that every person in the Bible that, that gives witness gives witness to that very thing. And he's the God that we, we serve. I hope that and pray that all of you would grow in your understanding and faith of, of, in God of cre- the God of creation. The Apostle Paul prayed that the church at Ephesus would know according to Ephesians 1, 18-21, that they would know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of the might of His strength. Literally, literally, Paul is stacking terms, trying to get you to understand, trying to get the church at Ephesus, but by extension, you and I, to understand how great God is. How great His divine power is. 
Now back in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter wants you and me, he wants his readers, but by extension he wants you and me to know that that same divine power that created the entire world, that created the universe, everything that we can see and beyond what we can see, uh, beyond what we can even imagine, that that same divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. You might say that we're the most powerful people in the world. Right? I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a good way. Beloved, if you are in Christ, if you are a believer in Christ, if you have placed your faith in Christ, you have been granted everything you need in this life to walk according to His ways. Have you noticed that in life that there's always a catch, right? You know, you find a great deal on a hotel and it's right next to the railroad track or it's on the wrong side of the tracks. So the question is, what's the catch to all this, right? Is there a catch? I mean, we've been given everything in Christ. We got everything pertaining to life and godliness. But what is the catch? Well, that is the catch. It, that's the, you need to take the notice of the qualifying statement here, according to life and godliness. You see, <clears throat> no matter what your favorite charlatan says, is that the right word? Yeah. You know, like Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, all those guys that, that preach health and wealth, this is not a health and wealth statement, okay? You might be very poor and possess the whole universe. I mean, think about that. Because you, you, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places are yours in Christ. But you might be poor. And that's okay. It's not a health and wealth statement. God does not exist to make you rich, rich and healthy. He does not promise a great salary with a great house and nice cars to drive. He doesn't. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact He promises you may lose all those things. But He's given us so much more, more than we can ever imagine. Because He's, as I said earlier, He has blessed us uh, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's Ephesians 1.3. He has given us so much more than this world can offer. Why would you settle? Why would you settle? If you, gave me, if you said, if, whatever car you would love to have, a Lamborghini or whatever, the, whatever you would have. If you set it right there and you said you can have that or you can have heaven. That's not even a comparison. It's not even a comparison. And yet these health and wealth preachers will try to tell you that that's the things you want. And they, and they, pack, they pack the place full. In Luke 16... Jesus refers to the wealth of this world as unrighteous wealth. He expects us to to properly steward the wealth we've been given in this world. And and there's nothing, I'm not telling you that that every Christian is going to be poor. Matter of fact, Keith and I did a a podcast that I'm going to post tomorrow that's going to walk through that. But we cannot miss that how we manage our wealth impacts the true riches of heaven. In Luke 16, 11, he says, Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? But here's the truth. As Christians, we need to stop clamoring over building our wealth here on earth. We need to stop shore, uh, storing up treasures on earth, and, and, but we need to store up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your treasure is on earth, that's where your heart's going to be. Well, according to Peter, back in 2 Peter 1, you as a Christian have been given everything you need. Everything you need. We cannot miss his point here. Earlier, I said that Peter was writing because false teachers had infiltrated the church. Evidently, they were causing trouble in the church with their heretical doctrines and immoral lifestyles. Uh, They were deceiving the church with their lies. Does that sound familiar, by the way? We don't know much about their specific heresies. We don't, that Peter doesn't specifically identify a, a specific cult or doctrinal system. He only says that they introdu- introduced destructive heresies, even denying the master 
and twisting the Scriptures. That's all he says. They follow their sensuality because of, because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. These people, uh, these people in Peter's day were greedy. They exploited the people with false words. Just in 2 Peter 2, 1-3, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow in their sensuality. And because of them, the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Again, that describes many people, many false teachers, even in the church today. This description is, is familiar to us because it describes every false teacher in our culture. In this case, and among other things, they were probably promoting a deeper knowledge. That's, that's what Peter is saying, is that, or wanting them to understand, is these people were promoting a deeper knowledge than, than can be, that can be possessed if they give, them money, if they give money and, and they give them power, right? The false teachers were looking for money and power, so they were promising something more. Again, that's familiar to us. To which Peter is responding... In Christ, you've been given everything that you need pertaining to life and godliness. So let's look real quick at at what God has given you. As a believer, let's look and see what God has given you by His grace. According to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, He's given you faith. Faith is a a gift of God. Uh, According to Ephesians 1, 7, He's given you forgiveness. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of His grace. As Christians, you've also been given the Holy Spirit. He, he sealed you according to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who was given as a pledge of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of what's to come unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. So we've been given this inheritance. We've been given forgiveness. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been given faith. We've been given also the fruit of the Spirit. That's according to Galatians 5.22 and 23. But the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So you've been given all of those things. That's the fruit of the Spirit. All of those things are yours in abundance. In abundance. Literally in abundance. You've also been given the gifts of the Spirit. According to Ephesians 4, 7, and 8. But to each of us, uh, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a captain of a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. He won the right to give you spiritual gifts, and you can walk those out, and, and, and you, you, you're able to bring glory to him by using those gifts. What an incredible gift to you and I. He's also given us, as we said earlier, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just think about the God who created the universe. The God who created everything that you see. Literally everything you can see and and more is yours. But even more than that, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is yours. Everything is yours. In Christ, that is. You know what else you've been given? You've been given Christ's righteousness. What an amazing gift that is. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You as a Christian, you have the very righteousness of God in you because of what Christ has done. Oh, I know we we all struggle with sin, but the glorious reality is, is that you have his righteousness. So that when you stand before him, all he's going to see is Christ's righteousness. You know what else you have? You have the church. You have the church. For your protection and your fellowship. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Acts 20.28 
Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. You're a part of that. You're a part of a church that, that He purchased with His own blood. What a wonderful gift that is. And He put you in this church for your protection. Uh, he put this in, you in, in this church for, for fellowship. He put you in this church to serve to serve Him and to serve others and to preach the gospel to a lost and dying world. What a gift it is to be in the church. I don't understand those who stay at home and, and watch online. I love the fact that we have an online ministry and the fact that people can see us online, but that I don't understand not being a part of the church. Not coming here on a Sunday and spending time with one another or a small group. Oh, by the way, go to small group. Go to small group. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. It really is. So how do we unlock these gifts? Peter says we unlock these gifts through the full knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Again, this is not a superficial knowledge of Christ or even facts about Him. It's a genuine relational knowledge. It is a deeply intimate knowledge. Scripture uses this word, the Greek word here, for intimate relations within the marriage. You understand what I'm saying. This speaks of a personal, intimate relationship with Christ who has called us by His glory and excellence. Do you get, do you get the picture? You and I, as Christians, as those who are, in, who are in Christ, get to have an intimate relationship with the Creator of this world. By the way, that's why Genesis 2 is there. Because we get to see that this intimacy that God created man, this, the intimate relationship that He created man to have. And, and, and by the way, marriage shows up there as well. So Peter, or, uh, Paul, when in Ephesians 5, when he says what we, we just read it earlier, talks about marriage and the, the wife and the husband and the marriage. And, 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 but it's, it's right there in Genesis chapter 2. So we see the creation of man and we see the same thing that where Adam and Eve come together. Again, it's a picture of who Christ is, and it's a picture of Christ in the church. It's a picture of the relationship, the personal and intimate relationship that we have with Christ. And these gifts, then, are ours through faith in Him. And they're ever-increasing because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us as we pursue Him according to His Word. And here's, what, here's the best part. Well, maybe not the best part, but it's a good part. They're free. You don't have to, they, they cost us nothing monetarily. Yet they do cost us our lives in this world. I mean, there's that. But Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wishes to come after, him, after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, so back in 2 Peter 1, 4, Peter reiterates these magnificent promises. He says, For by these He has granted us to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the, the, the corruption that is in this world by, or in the world by lust. You see, if you're in Christ, you've been made God's children. You've been adopted uh, again, I'm, I'm borrowing part on Paul here because Paul lays all this stuff out so well in Ephesians, especially in Ephesians 1, 5, and 6. He, he t says that we, he predestined us to adoptions as, as adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. We become the firstborn sons. And if you know anything about what firstborn sons, they get everything. They get everything. You get everything. All of it. And because of what Christ has done for you, you have escaped this, the corruption that is in this world by lust. So, our first litmus test. You must have a faith that advances and grows as you mature in Christ. You have to recognize that God saves us by His gracious choice. He chose us to have an intimate relationship with Him and all His promises then are unlocked at salvation, you have absolutely done nothing for it. You need to recognize what God has done for you. And as we walk out our Christian faith, 
we're going to be challenged in many ways. You are going to be challenged in many ways. You are going to go through trials, and you're possibly even going to suffer for the faith. And as we do, we need to recognize God's promises by faith. I mean, that's exactly what the, uh, the saints of old did. And in doing so, our faith is going to be tested. And as our faith, faith is tested, He's going to prove to be faithful, and therefore we're going to grow in Christ. You, you may even be tempted to fall away from Him. It, it, but yet, He's going to hold on to you. And as He holds on to you, you're going to advance in faith. You're going to advance in understanding. I mean, that's the whole point. But here's a scary reality. If you don't truly know Him, you know, you're here, and you're part of the gathering, but you don't truly know Him, you're going to be tempted to, using today's terms, you're going to be tempted to de deconstruct your faith. We see so many people deconstructing their faith. Jesus calls it taking the wide path leading to destruction. That's what he called it. He didn't use the word deconstructing, but whatever you choose, both are the same thing. If, you're, if you are a believer yet feel your heart being tugged by this world, and I, I feel it too, I do. I'm not going to shrink back from telling you that. You feel your heart being tugged by worldliness. You need to meditate. You need to stop. And you need to meditate on all that you've been given in Christ. You need to ask Him to soften your hard heart. You need to ask Him uh, to show you by faith all that He's given you. Everything that is yours, that God has gifted you, is all yours. And you need to ask Him to soften your, heart, your hard heart to see those things. And to walk according to faith. And if you're not a believer, you need to understand. These things are not yours. They're not yours. Oh, you may, you may partake in some of the good things in, in the body of Christ. You may be here. And you may get to have lunch with us and all the things that, that come with that. But... The truth of the matter is, the things that I just talked about are not yours unless you turn to Christ as your Lord and Savior. I, I beg you, don't let another moment pass without turning to Him. Now, let's apply these truths to our church, to this church. As we complete our first seven years as a church, as we approach our next seven years, I want us as a church to meditate on the promises that we have in Christ. It's easy for us to, to look at the here and now. We tend to look at what our eyes can see, right? right? We, tend to, we tend to look at what our eyes can see. What, what can our eyes see? We, we judge based on things like attendance, how many people are, are here. I, I can do that. I do that a lot, unfortunately. Uh, we, can, we can judge based on programs, like what programs we have or don't have. We, we can even judge based on money in the bank, right? How, what, our, what our financial situation is. Well, let me end with the words, the words of the writer of Hebrews. Some people, again, think this is Paul, but you make, the, you make your decision based on what you think. I, I kind of lean that way. But God, he, here's, what, here's what the writer of Hebrews says. He wants us to lay aside... Every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us. He wants us to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now let me stop real quick. Do y'all know the implications of that? Your Lord, the one who has saved you, is currently sitting, he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know what that means? He has infinite power. You've got to see that. You've got to see that. Then it says, this is 12.3, 12, 
Hebrews 12, 3. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary, fainting in hearts. Church, I pray that as we approach the next seven years, that you would not be weary, that you would not be fainting in hearts, but that you would come together as the body of Christ, that you would preach the light of the gospel here in Gainesville and beyond. And I pray that no matter what happens, no matter what goes on uh, in this world, that you would stand firm in Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you again. May we never forget all that we have in Christ Jesus. May we never forget that you are the creator of this world. That when you saved us, that we became partakers of your divine nature. That you gave us, you gifted us so much, so much more than we can ever imagine. Father, you've given us all that we need pertaining to life and godliness. And as we approach, again, the next seven years, as we approach 2024, as we work through this year, I pray that we would come to see even more and more all that you've given us, that we have everything that we need, that we've been given everything beyond our comprehension beyond that all that we could ever understand in Christ's name amen